Thanks for downloading the latest C-Suite podcast brought to you by the CIPR social media panel. I'm Russell Goldsmith and for show eight of the series, keeping the trend going from our last episode, we have two more industry CEOs in the studio today. Firstly, after stalking him for the last six months, after uh, seeing him present at the London College of Communication, I'm thrilled to finally get to interview Colin Byrne, CEO of Weber Shamwick uh, for UK and EMEA. And alongside Colin is Paul Frampton, CEO of Havas Media. Uh, now, given they're both pretty prolific on social media, it's uh, quite apt for them to be here talking about the topic uh, for today, which is the social CEO. Um, now, joining my guests and someone who is quickly turning into my resident presenter uh, sidekick is PR Moments Ben Smith. Um, so welcome to all of you. Uh, don't forget, as you listen to the show, please do tweet any comments you might have uh, using the hashtag hash CIPRCSuite. Um, Colin, I want to start with you, uh, as it was at that presentation at LCC that uh, you talked about the rise of the social CEO that gave me the idea for the topic of, the, of this episode. You made a point um, that the chief communications officer within any organisation has to be the CEO, um, and you put up on a slide, 81% of the world's most reputable companies engage socially on one or more uh, social um, platforms. So the first question is really how many of those CEOs are actually posting themselves or have to check with their PRs before doing so? And the point being, do we really have that many truly social CEOs? Well, I think when we're talking about social CEOs and social brands, we need to kind of slightly redefine what we're talking about because we all exist in the sort of um, social media equivalent of a Westminster bubble. So we're all on Twitter, we're all on LinkedIn, we're all on on, on Facebook. But that's not our findings in terms of our social CEO research. So when we're talking about a social CEO, first of all, it's about what channels are right for the business objective. Uh, and actually, the, the, the most prolifically used channels are the company website for uh, you know, CEOs telling corporate stories and, uh, and, and releasing you know, unique content to that company or that brand. The intranet, when looking at your own employees uh, and building uh, a great employer brand. Uh, LinkedIn for uh, customers. And yes, social media channels, as I think we commonly talk about, mm. like Twitter, are certainly important for engaging with the media, for example. But when we're looking at CEOs as corporate storytellers, the medium is increasingly video and uh, the platform is increasingly the company website where usage has doubled to about 80% over the last five years amongst the most high-profile CEOs uh, and assets like the company's intranet. So it's not all about the social media channels that we may engage in yeah, daily. Yeah. Well, well, we'll come on to um, internal comms uh, later because I've got a couple of questions regarding that. But, but you, And you've mentioned a number of channels there. So I suppose my question is, how do you choose the right one um, where you focus your, your attention on? You say yourself you're quite addicted to Twitter. I know you've, you've sort of presented that. You, you blog um, regularly at Burn Baby Burn, um, which I, I love the URL for. Um, but when I looked at your LinkedIn profile, for example, there, there wasn't a huge amount of content on that. So you've, you've obviously chosen sort of blogging and Twitter as your output. And, and I assume, you, like you say, you've got stuff going on in, yeah. internally. Yeah. How, 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 do, how does a CEO choose the right, the right platform to, to go for? Well, I think, again, it's what what is the objective? So if the objective is to build uh, a positive profile and reputation amongst a, an increasingly global uh, workforce, then clearly a company intranet is, is very useful. If it's about building credibility around products with investors, 
then the company website uh, is, is is the main um, platform. If it's about news and engaging with journalists, then yes, Twitter is incredibly important. Mm. So it's about you're almost surgically choosing the right uh, platform for the corporate objective. But I think the common denominator is the growth of video storytelling as a platform for the most social CEOs. Okay. Um, Paul, let's bring you in here. I mentioned how active you were on on uh, social media. Um, so again, picking up on what Colin was just saying there, so looking at where you blog, I, I could see that it, it tends to be on the Havas uh, mm-hmm. um, media website. Um, you've done a bit on LinkedIn. Um, Twitter seems to be your uh, preferred choice as well. Um, it is. And, and um, it's funny because I, I noticed you'd written a piece recently. It said, brilliant leaders have an omnipresent, consistent voice and share continually and widely. Um, but I thought the level of your tweets was bordering on addiction rather than knowledge sharing. <laughs> um, I think you're up to about 21,000 now um, and growing. Um, what's your thoughts to, to that in terms of how, how much content is, is being shared by the CEO at the moment? So I absolutely have a fondness and a keenness for Twitter. Um, and that's a better way than an, addi- an addiction. And, uh, <laughs> the comment I made about kind of omnipresent, consistent voice is that the way that I use it as a vehicle is to talk to, I guess, the audience that may be our customers, maybe our customers in the future, but also to engage with our talent. Most of our um, kind of workforce is on Twitter, a millennial audience, and I find it's an interesting way to communicate with them because I can only get up in front of them on a formal uh, basis once a month. Um, and that's not often regular enough with their expectation in terms of understanding the company strategy, uh, kind of what our commitments are, and also understanding me as an individual. I think there's a really interesting thing about authenticity um, with social. Um, the modern leader has to be a little bit more personal. Business is not just all about the kind of the hierarchical legacy uh, kind of command and control um, approaches that existed in the past. And I think social when it's used best, actually gives an insight into the individual. Um, and I think increasingly your workforce, your customers, your partners want to understand a bit about the, the DNA of the company that they're working with as well as the capabilities mm. of that company. So it's interesting. You've both picked up there on on quite a lot of the importance is on the internal side of it. Is is there a – are you sharing content, though, um, or, or thoughts – uh, separate from what, what's going out on, on your external feed, then I, I guess you are doing other activity internally as well? Would so the messaging that will go out on Twitter will be very consistent with what I guess I would deliver internally to my teams, but I don't see the day-to-day teams that often I tend to, as I'm sure um, kind of most Colin will too, tend to see the senior layer of my kind of team more often than I do the day-to-day teams. Yeah. So social gives me the ability to kind of push some of that messaging out and to get feedback. Um, because the interesting thing is it's not just a broadcast channel. It should be one where there's an opportunity for some of that talent to actually kind of engage um, and actually query. Um, and it's also setting, I guess, the right um, the right example, mm. because increasingly I want my employees to be employees that are advocates for us. And if they are socially active, then they build a story about the agency that we have themselves, which is a lot more true and authentic than what anything I can ever say. Okay. Um Ben, let's, let's bring you into the, uh, the conversation here. Um, you obviously have a number of CEOs uh, presenting at, at the various different events. A uh, chance for a plug here. I know Colin is lined up uh, to be on a panel at one you've got coming up on the 21st of May uh, yep. called PR is Changing. Um, 
So, so um, j- just one of the thoughts I was thinking in terms of like we're in the communication business ourselves. So it's almost like a given that these guys are, are, are going to be, um, you know, using social uh, regularly and being active on it. But, but do you expect every CEO to be the same in, in that respect? Well, exactly. I mean, I think for for the roles that Paul and Colin are doing, it absolutely makes sense to be active within the social channels of their audience, be that their potential clients, be that their potential employees, and indeed their employees. Um, I think it becomes a slightly more interesting argument once you come out of our PR bubble and you look at various other um, more general-type CEOs. Um, Because in the end, is it a good idea for everyone to be in social? Probably yes, but it has to be genuine. Um, and does everybody have the right personality and time and the, and the right amount of time to be on Twitter all day, every day? Probably not. Um, and it also has to be appropriate and it definitely has to be sustainable. There's nothing worse than giving Twitter a quick go and then you look at the CEO and they haven't tweeted for the best part of a year. So uh, I think the short answer is, is yes, but it needs to be appropriate, genuine and sustainable. Um, and I just throw a few examples out there. Let's look at Tony Fernandez, from, from who, who's the, the chairman of, C, of Q, Queen's Park Rangers Football Club, who I'm sure is a, a thoroughly nice bloke. Um, but I'm not sure his um, incessant tweeting has necessarily done his reputation or the reputation of Queen's Park Rangers much good. Um, so it's not, it's not a no-brainer. Um, and I do also think you need to think about the channels you're going to use as well. Because um, you probably can't do all channels um, and what these guys have alluded to is that they've used the most appropriate channel, bearing in mind probably their personal taste, but also their audience. Mm. Um, now, whether they've done that um, just as a matter of course or, or, or through some great strategy and objective, I, I don't know. But I would have thought it would make sense for CEOs not just to, not necessarily to leap into this, but think about the amount of um, personal resource they want to put into it um, and, the, and the correct channel. And, and indeed, as Colin mentioned, I think in his opening statement, what is the objective? Yeah, OK. Um, I want to move on to a question uh, we've received from uh, one of our listeners. Uh, we, do, we do have them. Um, this one is from uh, Janet Morgan, who is uh, Director of Global Content Strategy and Planning at GSK. Uh, 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 GSK. And um, this is about what happens to a brand um, if, as a company, you've invested in your CEO becoming a social CEO, um, but then, if they then move on to arrival, so what? What Janet highlighted in uh, in the uh, email that she sent is opposed to any sort of thought leader items that they may have published in print. Uh, when it comes to social media, their following stays with the individual, not the company. So she makes the point that obviously this goes for other senior staff too. You were talking, uh, Paul, about you know encouraging more and more people to sort of get active in in um, in social. But then if they leave, then what, what? You know, what's the issue there, Colin? Do you want to pick up on this one? Well, look, I think the principles are exactly the same as, as uh, you know, incumbent on any uh, CEO these days, and that is succession strategy, developing the next team. And if you think about social media, it's odds on that the next tier of leaders down from the CEO is probably going to be more social than the CEO generationally. I mean, one of the things we've looked at in our social CEO research is the Fortune Most Powerful Women CEOs. Uh, And we see there that something like 80% of women CEOs in that ranking are social and probably three years ago were not CEO. They're probably CFO or COO or CCO. So 
I think it's the same principle as as successions uh, planning, but generationally, they're probably going to be more social anyway. So you build your team's sociability, not just your own sociability. Okay, Paul, you're nodding away there. Have you got thoughts on this? Well, I think I think there's something quite interesting about we're at a very nascent stage of this concept of the social seat. I think in five years' time, it will be um, kind of much more common ground. Um, so actually, I look at that question and think. Um, actually, the benefit of that CEO being social is that they'll probably kind of have their head above the parapet and other organisations would look at, this is the type of behaviour, the type of leader that we may want. Um, and therefore, actually, it kind of puts an emphasis back on <laughs> their organisation to think smartly about that exact mm. point that Colin made about succession yeah. planning and people thinking about how else they will get their thought leadership out there. So I have a view that kind of the, this term thought leadership is thrown around quite loosely um, and actually, if you're generally a leader and have opinions that are relevant and interesting, then you need to take the platforms that exist out there, whether they be LinkedIn, Twitter, Medium, and use them to express your opinion and sometimes even kind of express part of an opinion and get some feedback and then evolve that. Um, you can't just expect that people tune into your thought leadership when you want to get up on a parapet um, and express it to other people. You have to actually engage with an audience. So I think, I think it suggests um, a concern about... If you create someone they're that good and then they may go somewhere else, mm. that you're thinking you're focusing on the wrong thing, um, as opposed to actually trying to be an organisation that does the right thing. Okay. Um, another change of topic. Um, obviously, we couldn't let this uh, show pass without looking back at last week's election. Um, Colin, uh, you were quoting a blog post that was uh, submitted to the CIPR's uh, conversation um, at, at the weekend. It was quite critical of the main. Uh, party's use of social media communications during the campaign. One example you made reference to was that the uh, political parties used Twitter as an extension to their traditional uh, press offices and that one of Labour's releases was embargoed for like one minute past uh, midnight on Wednesday. Um, and, and you said it was like targeting the Guardian's first edition, um, but questioning why you even need an embargo um, in 24-7 social media election, um, which I totally agree on. Um, what I was keen to find out is what, what you think um, each of the party leaders could have done, you know, almost let's treat them as a CEO, let's say. What what could they have done more themselves to engage with the voters via, via social during that whole process? Sure. Well, you know, in the run-up to this election, there was a lot of excitement that this was going to be the first UK social media election. And, you know, there was a lot of social media activity. The question is, what did it add, add up to? And did it equal engagement or just more um, channels for propaganda, uh, and my view is largely it equaled more channels for propaganda. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there were some genuine engagement via social media. Um, Sky did that excellent stand up and be counted initiative with uh, with with YouTube, uh, where David Cameron got bold the tax on tampons question, which was <laughs> raw and unfiltered, and I guess he hadn't been prepped for it. Um, there was a lot of. You know, um, Nick is in a twist in the in the prints about um, about Miliband and, and and Russell Brand. I actually think that was quite an interesting initiative because Ed didn't know what was going to happen. Yeah, Russell could have thrown him out, thrown cold water over him, yeah. told him people not to vote for him. Uh, but at the end of the day, it was viewed by 1.5 million people, which is a lot more than. Uh, like the Tories' uh, Facebook page, despite spending, you know, a million quid on it. So, you know, I don't think it was the social media election. I think the parties and the media are yet to understand that social media isn't just another channel for your one-way communication. Um, and I suspect we'll have to wait until the next generation of 
comms directors for political parties are social media people and not recycled tabloid or print journalists. Mm. Ben, thoughts on that? I, I, I wrote just down here that the word passion seems to me that uh, definitely social media, to have success and engagement in a social media channel, you need to be passionate. Um, and I, I didn't really pick up a lot of passion. Um, you know, posing for the odd selfie doesn't doesn't get me passionate. And I, I think there was a, a lack of um, that that engagement and, and um, activity that would, would make people believe and, and, and join in, in in whatever movement it was you were representing. I, I, I also, we're also very British, aren't we? In, you know, we're, we're, this is Britain, not America. And I wonder if our take up of social media from a political perspective, you know, I'm not sure when we look back at this in whenever it was five, ten years time, when we think, OK, we did actually have a social media election. I'm not sure it's going to be a, a carbon copy of what happened in the Obama campaign, which I think we're all sort of thinking, oh, maybe that's going to happen over here. We're far more cynical over here than that as individuals. Um, and... It will happen, but I don't think it'll probably happen in the way we all think it, or possibly to the extent we all think it will happen. Okay. Um, Obviously, we've got loads to get get through, and I want to move on to another topic. Uh, Paul, this is a different one for you. Um, So when I was researching, um, in fact, both of your Twitter feeds, um, one of the tweets that caught my eye um, from you, Paul, was that you wrote, um, or tweeted, I should say, there is nothing quite the same as that feeling you have on a Sunday evening on the bank holiday weekend. Um, enjoy this rare delight, everyone. Um, so this got led nicely onto the, the the whole issue of having to always be on or, or, or be always on rather. My, so the question really is, do you think a, a CEO is ever allowed uh, to put their mobile phone down? If someone wants to have a pop at an organisation, it could be any time, day or night. Um, you know, are they expected to respond straight away? What, what's your thoughts on that? So there are, there are two things I'd say to that, is it? The first was the reason I guess I chose to tweet that because I usually use Twitter as more of a professional platform than a than a personal one, but I felt that it demonstrated an authenticity to my staff that I also enjoy having an extra day's holiday as much as they do, and I'm not racing for them to get back into work. But in terms of the always on piece, I mean, my personal mantra is to respond to things very quickly because I think with an always on world, um, you have to at least uh, acknowledge something. That doesn't mean you respond fully, whether it's an email or a tweet or whatever, that you acknowledge that something um, has been sent to you personally, because if it's to Paul Frampton, Colin Byrne, David Cameron, then it's to an individual. That's how the, that's how the individual kind of is, is addressing you. You might think, well, actually, they're addressing my company and someone in my department might deal with that, but they're addressing me individually and they're asking me a question. So I personally think I have to deal with that. Now, the question was raised earlier, Ben raised about, if you're outside of the Marcoms industry, um, do you have to still respond in quite the same way? Um, and I think you need to, as a CEO, understand and acknowledge the time that would be involved if you do lean into this, um, because um, clearly if you've got lots of customer complaints and a lot of social, if you we work with O2, if you look at their feed, a lot of that is simply people kind of asking why their coverage is not good or their phone doesn't work. Yeah. And they actually do quite a good job of responding to that. But it's, it's hard to filter out anything interesting other than response to customer service. Um, so I personally think the CEO's feed should be about a more personal side and a more authentic side, going back to my earlier point of the company. Um, I don't think you need to respond within five minutes. It's at half past eight at night. But I think... You need to acknowledge something. If someone sends something to you personally, trying to DM them and not respond back to them if it's a difficult piece in the same way as in a difficult press conference, you you would have to respond to it. I think 
great leaders have to be capable of responding to challenging questions, mm. whether that's social or in a press conference. It's no different. Yeah, yeah. Colin, have you ever been in a situation where you've had to manage something that, that could start to create a bit of a crisis if it, if it hasn't had a response? Hey, I used to have hair. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Though I wouldn't want to talk about individually, but I very much agree with Paul. I think engagement is not the same as within two minutes getting back with a 144-character skim off a press release and sounding like a, an automaton. You know, engagement is a different thing. So acknowledging, yes, and even saying, and I've had this from some of the brands that I occasionally complain about, let me get back to you. That is engagement mm. rather than just coming back with, you know, a, a line which sounds like it's been lifted out of a crisis manual or, a you know, customer engagement handbook is inauthentic. I'd rather have authentic engagement than inauthentic, fast, you know, off the cuff and rather glib uh, customer service speak. OK, but it takes resource, though, doesn't it? I mean, that's the, mm. the it, it takes resource. Yeah. I mean, going back to that O2 example, when, a, when there is an outage that their customer service team is is under a lot of you know they have to they have to spend a lot of money frankly staffing um the the long hours that that requires so it's not it, it's in a world of limited resources it's it's not it's it's difficult to do it's um, a world of limited resources but one where communications is a greater corporate mm. asset and activity than ever before yeah. so rather than complain about it brands have to put the uh, put the money put the resource in the right place and communications is increasingly the right place to put resource. And in your reports, how far down that road are we? Are we have we made a lot of progress towards brands investing in that area sufficiently? I think the point about the CEO being the chief communications officer, I think is a very valid one. I think the reality is too often that is outsourced to a corporate PR team or a marketing team and then to an agency. So it's a long a long way away from the individual, the CEO. So I would say that we're still very early on that journey. I think the the example of the Malaysian airline CEO and how he dealt with uh, yeah. what was possibly one of the worst um, crises possible by actually taking to Twitter and communicating in quite a heartfelt way mm. and even with spelling mistakes, um, kind of gave a level of authenticity that felt like it was him as an individual that leads a company that suddenly had been thrown into um, kind of a, a very uncomfortable place that he was rather than hiding from the issue and deciding to put to shut all communications down, which is probably the, the standard corporate practice still, mm. he leant into it and opened himself up um, to, to kind of have people kind of respond. And I think from what I saw, he actually tried to respond to almost everyone that threw mm. things back in. So I think... There are still, and I've heard this term used, it's quite quite smart. The, the people that are doing this are still probably blue unicorns. There isn't a lot of them, um, but I think they're increasingly starting to appear. And you've got the obvious examples like Richard Branson and uh, it's, it's quite Ronan of O2, the CEO of yeah, O2. Okay. And we were talking about earlier, Colin and I were talking about earlier, the fact that in the US it's probably slightly more prevalent. But I think you're, you were saying that you had some research that suggested it's starting to... Yeah, I think so. Through. But I think, Paul, you make a very important point, which is... Um, Social media means that we've had to completely rethink the way and the speed that people respond. Because, you know, traditionally it would be, great, let's get the lawyers together and they'll take three days to sign off the press release. And meantime, your reputation's in tatters. And if you look, and I'm sorry to come back to politics, but if you look at what 
um, observers of the last Obama campaign said was really interesting was that the person in charge of Obama's digital campaign didn't have to go up the line to 15 committees to agree a tweet. They were, they were empowered Power. to do yeah. that, and that meant it was quick and it was authentic, whereas a lot of companies still are in the old-fashioned command and control mindset where literally you have to assemble the lawyers and get 15,000 people to sign off the press release. doesn't work anymore. Good. Um, Paul, let's, let's uh, pick up on some of the things you've been talking about in terms of getting your team um, engaged with social quite a bit because um, this ties in with the discussion that Ben and I had on a previous show, show four, for those uh, listeners that want to download a uh, previous episodes, um, but it was a discussion with IBM's uh, Andrew Grill on the topic of social business. But maybe you can talk through some of the initiatives you have in place at Havas, uh, 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 Havas that embraces that talent engagement. So I think IBM is actually a good example of this. If, you, if you've got a social CEO, then you need a social employee um, and a social business that follows it. Otherwise, it's just something that's happening at the very top. The IBM strategy, I think, has been quite smart, and I forget the hashtag that they use internally. I think it's smarter place to work, or better place to better place to work, or better approach to work, or something like that. So, we took a similar kind of insight to try and give some of our talent and employees a palette with which to talk about their interaction with Havas, but in their own words. So, i.e., a hashtag that kind of signaled that this was something that they were saying that was related to the business or related to one of our uh, kind of core messages, but it was their own words. So, we, we chose two specific hashtags. One was hashtag have us together. Uh, our company strategy is to be more integrated, but more connected across our organizations, be horizontal rather than vertical. So, anything that implied working in a more collaborative, more network space, we encourage people to use that. And if you go and look at hashtag have us together, you'll see it's all of our employees choosing different things to talk about, whether it's in the pub with some of the guys that work on one of our accounts or whether it's uh, we've just won a piece of business by pitching together with three different agencies. They, they choose how they do that. Um, the second, which is related to some research that we run around how brands need to be meaningful, was hashtag meaningful place to work. That one is very specifically kind of suggested to our staff to think about ways that they will express why working for Havas is... Why have us as an organisation that cares about them? And again, that comes down to them. It could be that there's a bake sale um, in our kind of cafe and they're expressing that that's a meaningful place to work. It could be that they get their day off for a birthday or whatever it might be. And the, the value to us as an organisation is our people, our talent, are spreading a message about the type of organisation that we are and our employer brand without me having to write it in a paragraph and put it onto a CV and push it out and hope that potential... Uh, kind of potential talent might read it. So it, it spreads a message, particularly to a generation that I'm trying to employ increasingly, millennials, yeah. about the type of organisation we are and about the type of behaviours and culture that you will join if you choose to join Havas. Um, Colin, this link, links nicely onto when I saw you present at LCC, you put up a slide talking about the type of uh, sort of recruit that you look for in, in PR and, and you talked about it being a T-shaped uh, personal t-shaped people do you, do you want to expand a little on on that yeah I, I mean i think you know we are becoming uh, and you talked about meaningful brands the truth is no brand now ex exists in isolation from what's going on in the world and increasingly although you know the the younger generation gets a bad rap for being disengaged from politics what they that's actually talking about is disengaged from formal party political structures, not from issues. 
Um, so just as brands have to embrace social purpose, uh, we want people who embrace social purpose. So they may have a, a deep uh, knowledge of the semiconductor public relations industry in a B2B technology environment, but we want them to be interested in the world. Um, you know, I still look at people's media consumption, um, both online and offline, as a an indicator of how interested they are in the world because you don't want people who just know about things in isolation from, uh, you know, the real world in, in which the, their clients and brands um, now exist. Um, you have both given me the perfect link into the into the next question I had because you've both mentioned meaningful brands. Um, now, Paul, when I mentioned that you were going to be on the show, I had a whole list of questions submitted by um, Kate Clough of Instinctive Partners, um, and I promised to give her a Twitter shout-out, so it's at uh, Kate Clough, uh, simply enough. Um, but she was quite uh, keen to find out about your new report, uh, which, coincidentally, is called uh, Meaningful Brands. Um, and for those uh, who haven't seen the report, go to www.meaningful-brands.com. Um, do you want to tell us how that research came about and just give us a little intro to it? Of course, yes. So... Building on the point that Colin made, we're in a world where everything's a lot more kind of a lot more transparent um, and people's consumption and the speed with which news and any information travels is unlike it's ever been before. So uh, the premise of Meaningful Brands that is that in a world where uh, you have that, the age of both damage and opportunity from a social perspective, but also a world where increasingly people look to brands and businesses because they are the same thing to solve some of the world's problems as much as they do to the government, it puts brands in a really interesting kind of place, both as an opportunity um, and from a kind of, are they actually delivering that today? So we started, our old CEO, global CEO, started this from conversations he had with C-level kind of global brands around sustainability. And we started to look in how is important is sustainability as it became important in the CSR department. We then started to dig deeper and found out that it wasn't this siloed thing that corporate social responsibility sat on the edge. It was increasingly starting. We started this six, seven years ago when it was very, it wasn't quite so pertinent as it is today because mm. there's a lot of talk about purpose paul pullman and unilever is often held up as a as an example of a business that well, well funny enough kate actually uh so when she sent me her her questions she said um and i looked up on this he was it was on his release on the website he said brands with purpose which is what they call them accounted yeah. for half the company's growth in yes. 2014 Incredible and grew at twice the rate of the rest of the business um, but I thought that was quite relevant because one of the key findings in your report, um, which I did did have a quick look at, um, and it said that meaningful brands outperformed the stock market by 133%. Yeah, so there were two statistics and we've worked on this really hard over the last five years because I think when we first brought this research out, uh, everyone nodded a lot. But it was like, well, OK, does this, does this change the fiscal success of a business? If I'm more meaningful, do people buy more from me? Um, and there were two statistics. There's, there's the stock price um, effect, if you are more meaningful. And I'll talk about what meaningful is in a second, because otherwise it, it's just a superlative. Yeah, because it would be good to know sort of like what traits you yeah. know, certain brands have. And... I'll, I'll come back to that in a second. So the, the other aspect is the ret- what we're calling the return on meaning. So for every kind of increment in terms of meaningfulness to an individual, we've proven that there's a percentage uplift in purchase intent, um, in consideration, et cetera, et cetera. So... To go back to the to the core kind of way that we measure meaningfuls, there are three three levels. The first is, I suppose, the hygiene levels. Uh, do you provide products that are fairly priced? Do you provide products that are of good uh, value and a good quality? 
but the two other areas are the most important. The first is personal well-being. So does your brand or your kind of, uh, do your products provide me as an individual with a way to connect with my family and friends? Do they improve my ability to eat healthily? Do they improve my self-esteem? And then lastly, collective well-being. So does your brand contribute to the community I live in, to the economy uh, that I exist in, um, to those that are potentially less, uh, less uh, kind of in a less favourable position than I? And quite a lot of brands do very well on personal. Because if you imagine, if you, if you reverse um, to how brands have built equity, a lot of it was originally functional. I provide a product that helps your life. Then it moved to aspirational. I want, I want to buy that brand because that says something about me. Our premise is that we're moving into a stage, and some brands have already, like Unilever, where the meaningfulness of that brand, the relevance to my life, the value that you provide in my individual life to the people around me and to the community around me is really, really important. Because you as an organisation have a fundamental role to play in effecting change. Um, and increasingly, we've seen statistics that show that people in the UK um, expect that both brands and governments are equally responsible for this. So what does that mean? It means that actually brands need to think about not just how do I sell a product, but how do I actually genuinely deliver the value to individuals on a day-to-day basis. And I think actually Unilever, you could argue a lot of the products that they provide, why would anyone care whether they're meaningful? It's soap powder or it's kind of deodorant. But they've demonstrated that actually there are there are ways to make those brands meaningful to people's lives on a day-to-day basis. Ben, any, any comments on this? Or Colin, do you want to... I, I just wondered, is that... Does the research cover B2B markets as well as B2C? Is it... Because uh, a, a meaningful brand is, is wonderful if it's, I don't know, Dove or, or whatever else. If it's... Yeah cement it's a bit more difficult isn't it so i just wondered there were implications in those for one of a better phrase dull more, more dull products and yeah, more I mean, mundane products it, it brought it, it broadly looks at um i guess the bigger b2c brands across right. the world and, and the brands that genuinely do well um it, in the world the brands 50 percent of the brands that succeed high on these metrics are technology driven brands and i think part of that is because of the experience that they provide they provide a better experience they disrupt something that is um, a poor experience. I mean, the number one brand, which may surprise you in the UK, was actually Amazon. And I've had a lot of challenge to that. It was like, well, Amazon, tax evaders, the Panorama program, treatment of um, employees in the factories. But if you think about it, it's very difficult to replace Amazon in your life. Um, particularly with female audience, Amazon Prime, for a female working audience, Amazon Prime is one of the most valuable things in their lives. Mm. Um, to be able to, on a Friday night, don't have time, get something ready for a kid's party to take and it turns up on my doorstep the next day. Difficult to replace. Take Starbucks. You could equally suggest that it had similar issues from a tax perspective. Only 27% of people said they'd care if Starbucks disappeared. So one in three. One in seven said they'd care if Amazon disappeared because I simply can't find what Amazon provides to me very easily anywhere else. So it does just come down to, do you improve my day-to-day life? whether people really care, whether they're evading tax when it actually provides a, a service to them and a customer experience that has improved their ability to spend more time with their kids, to actually turn up to a party with a present on time. I think that's an, it, it, it starts an interesting kind yeah. of uh, train of thought. I mean, we, we, I thought it was interesting that when um, PR Week um, named their top uh, PR people in the UK recently, they put the Unilever CEO at the top 
And that wasn't because yeah. Paul writes a good press release or tweets <laughs> a good tweet. It's because he's one of the CEOs who's put social purpose at the heart of his brands and his organisation. And it's about the modern public relations industry. We're no longer in the spin business. We're in the authenticity and change business. And personally, I welcome that. Um, let's get you... I was just going to say we, we were going off topic a little bit because I did want to talk about that, but you've you've helped me bring it back to the uh, the social CEO there. So thank happy you. to help. It's <laughs> <laughs> almost well, like we're <laughs> Well, listen, we're, um, we're 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 getting close to the end. Um, when we first uh, you know started discussing producing this series of podcasts at CIPR's social media panel, our aim was really to reach those CEOs who hadn't quite embraced uh, social. Um, so I'm hoping that we can sort of like we're starting to tap into that audience as we grow our listeners. But with that in mind, I'd like to finish off by asking both of you to highlight. Three uh, three key benefits, if you can, um, that you personally get from engaging on social, and you, we may have sort of touched on this already. But if you can sum that up, you know, in, in this sort of final question, Paul, maybe you want to kick that off. Okay, so I'd say the f- the first two we've probably touched quite a lot: um, engagement of existing talent and future talent that might want to join our organisation. Um, the second piece would be very much about finding a way to express the strategy that we have um, as a business and to gain feedback and new contacts that may be interested in that. And the third one is actually a lot more kind of personal. It's about using things like Twitter and LinkedIn as an education platform. I mean, I learn a lot every day from people all over the world that are kind of more focused on an issue that is important to our business that I think might disrupt our business. So from Silicon Valley to Asia um, to totally different sectors, by picking and following the right people, I've found that Twitter can be a really interesting platform for education if used smartly, and I encourage my people to use it like that if they don't want to be someone that actually tweets a lot, just use it as a way to learn. Okay. Ben? I think for a challenger brand like PR Moment, social has has meant that the gloves are off a little bit. I mean, I I don't think we could have done what we've done without social media for a moment. Um, The barriers to entry... Um, although it, it has broken down the barriers to entry from a, from a publishing perspective, um, what it ena- enables us to do, Twitter is, is clearly the, the, the most significant for us, but it allows us to increase our audience, gain new audience, um, massively increase our profile. Um, and I suppose the, 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 the key thing for us is that 40% of our audience comes from Twitter on the website. I'll, ch- I'll challenge you on a bit, though, in terms of... Cause you, in terms of like the social CEO, you, mm. you yourself tweet from the real PR yeah, moment, not yeah. from Ben Smith. So yeah, it's difficult. That's a put you on the spot there. Well, <laughs> it's one of those I always think about. Uh, and the, the truth is, if I had, despite un- what I said to Colin earlier, unlimited resource and time, yeah. I, I would tweet from Ben Smith. But um, I, I don't have the. If I did that, I would be. I, I always think the sort of dual tweets look awful. I want to have um, exclusive tweets for each, yeah. and I just, I just can't. I just don't have that resource. Right. It, it, a bit of it is also what we came back to a bit earlier was that um, lots of Twitter followers don't actually, well, don't necessarily make you money. Um, so you have to. It, it's a balancing act, I think. Okay, for us, it is anyway. Sorry, I cut across you. Had you given me your? Uh... No, that's your three. I, that, was, that was as good as it got. So, um, um, Colin, uh, we started with you. We'll finish with you. What, what are your three sort of key uh, uh, key benefits, would you say? Well, I'm a gobby Mancunian, so Twitter was sort of manna from heaven for me, and I, <laughs> I, 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 I love it, and like Paul, slightly addicted to it. But, you know, from a business perspective, our brand is engaging always. So uh, one would reasonably expect from the top down, Webber Shamwick people engage always. Secondly... Um, I 
it's a great echo chamber for ideas and also very mm. democratic. So I throw things out there, you know, whether it's about social media in the general election or recently it was about where I could adopt a, a hedgehog for my garden. And you get great feedback from a, such a wide and diverse uh, group of very knowledgeable people. And thirdly, like with Paul, it's about building the employer brand. You know, we're all in the market for... Uh, for, for social media savvy, smart millennials and quite soon Gen Zs. Uh, and social media is a great way to do that. Fantastic. Um, thank you, gents, for uh, your time. Um, I know you've had busy schedules, uh, so thanks for giving that up. Um, for those listeners not already following uh, each of these guys on Twitter, I think I just gave your uh, plug out, Ben, which is uh, um, the real, at uh, the real uh, PR moment. Um, but uh, I recommend you, you follow all three of them. So Paul Frampton, CEO of uh, Havas Media, uh, can be found at, at Paul underscore Framp. Um, and Colin Byrne, CEO of Weber Shamwick, uh, UK and EMEA, is at uh, at Cap Burn, and that's C A P B Y R N E. Ben, always a pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> um, uh, no doubt I'll see you again for the next one if you can make it. Um, finally, before I sign off, uh, just a couple of quick reminders. Firstly, we're still looking for sponsors for our C Suite podcast. So if you uh, like to put your name to this series of interviews and help us produce more of them, please drop me a line on Twitter. You can find me at Russ Goldsmith. Uh, don't forget you can help us up the iTunes charts as well by subscribing to our feed, by searching for the CIPR social media panel in the iTunes store. Um, please do rate us and give us some good feedback as well if you can and finally uh, you can also follow the CIPR social media panel on Twitter using at CIPRSM thanks for listening and goodbye